0: This is from the bookshelves of Forbes India, I'm Divya Shekhar. Our guest on today's episode is author and financial educator Monica Hala. Her last book, Let's Talk Money, was a national bestseller, where she offered a practical approach to financial security and how we can make our money work for us. Now she wants to take the conversation that she started with that book forward. In her recently released book called Let's Talk Mutual Funds, she gives a wealth of information on everything you possibly need to know about mutual funds and investing in them. We speak with her about the psyche of the Indian investor, the role played by financial influencers on social media and whether they need to be regulated, recent policy developments in the mutual fund industry and a lot more. So stay tuned with us till the very end. Welcome to the podcast, Monica.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the invite.
0: After the huge success of Let's Talk Money, what prompted you to zoom into mutual funds? Yeah. So in fact, um,
1: a little bit of a trailer was a little bit of a heads up was there in the book, Let's Talk Money. Um, Because I remember as I wrote the chapter on mutual funds in Let's Talk Money, I felt that I wasn't being able to do justice to a product, which is so aimed at retail investors. So in fact, I had written there that uh, I think this deserves a book by itself. And then the readers and the enthusiasts of Let's Talk Money did not let me forget it. And they would keep on on social media, tagging me, asking me, when is the next book coming? So it really is like a sequel. It takes the conversation in Let's Talk Money forward, because uh, I believe that for Indian retail investors, mutual funds, is really one of the best routes to accessing different asset classes and therefore i thought it deserved a full book by itself
0: so was there a, in in is there an, in a, was there in a sense of pressure to replicate the success or live up to that kind of a benchmark that you had set with that book
1: so the joke within uh, the financial industry which i myself am talking about is that now i need to beat my own benchmark You know, because we, uh, in the financial sector, benchmarks are a really important part of a financial product where if a mutual fund cannot beat its benchmark, it's really, you know, not that good. So, of course, there is this idea that, um, you know, the book should be very good. But I think more important to me, Divya, is the fact that I hope the book is useful. So, I don't know if I'm looking at numbers or I'm looking at, uh, you know how I'll measure success, but if I'm able to modify behavior of a certain number of people through this book, who learn to use the product to their advantage, I think for me that is my success. My success is when somebody tells me or tags me or communicates in any possible way that my work has impacted their life; they're in a better place with their money. And that, for me, defines my success. So I'm, of course, hoping that the book does well, but uh, I'm not really worrying about it.
0: Right. You know, in fact, I definitely want to touch upon uh, the possible takeaways that, you know, you would like people to have from your book a bit on that later. Before that, you know, I was I was reading your book and, you know, I was thinking that, you know, in the past few years, we've seen more investors coming from different, coming into the mutual fund industry from different parts of the country. Uh, they are staying invested for long, uh, they are investing more in equities, for instance, and the assets under management uh, of the mutual funds industry has doubled over the past five years to about 40 trillion rupees as of November 2022. So, could you help us make sense of these numbers?
1: You know, Divya, the strange thing about this industry is that as the regulator has gone on making the rules stricter and stricter and more investor friendly, we've seen investors have intuitively understood that this is a product which is catered to their advantage, to their needs. And we have seen uh, the industry innovate. Very, very well as well. So, therefore, you know, all the stars have got aligned with this product where uh, the regulator took away the front commissions, took away upfronting of trail commissions, has made uh, schemes true to label, has cleaned up benchmarks, has a dynamic riskometer in place. So, all the things which a retail investor requires are all there. Now you look at another story which is playing out. So one is that the regulatory uh, endeavor and the industry's innovation have got us a product which is really useful and uh, relevant to a retail investor. And on the parallel track, our macro story is playing out where now the growth rates of six and seven, are. we are looking at those. We have grown fairly well in the last 20 years. The 91 reforms took 10 years to unleash the sort of financial products and middle class India, which we, are, we saw by the turn of the millennium. Now, 20 years later, we are, in a, we are approaching a very different space where growth is getting stable. The middle class aspirational uh, cohort is getting larger and larger. Therefore, the need for financialization, the need for modern financial products is there. If I look at it in that context, then I will say that I think the mutual fund industry can be far, far larger. 42 trillion is good, but look at the size of the middle class. Look at the size of the investing potential. I think it can be a multiplier of that. But again, before we can do that, we would need a stock and a bond market, which is more liquid. So If I'm stitching together different stories, uh, you don't see the AUM of the industry in isolation, but you see it with the Indian growth story on one side and also we need the stock markets and the bond markets to be deeper, wider, more liquid. We need larger ticket IPOs coming in because we cannot have pipelines of retail money without there being more very large stocks to absorb that money in the market. So we need all of that to go together. So looking at all of that, as far as the depth of the market and uh, the growth today, I think we are at a good level. But going forward, I would really hope that we get better liquidity depth in both stocks and bonds before uh, the size of the industry grows exponentially, because that then becomes a problem.
0: Yeah, because, you know, that's that's an important point that you've touched upon about how there is a lot more potential for the mutual fund industry to grow. Like, there were close to about 140 million mutual fund accounts or folios as of October 2022. And many people argue that the penetration of mutual funds, like you also pointed out, is still low in India, around 10%. So how many Indians actually at this point have an income that's adequate for them to set aside a bit for mutual fund investments?
1: Anyone who can set aside aside 500 rupees a month, which I think even uh, the non middle class is able to do can actually start investing in mutual funds. I think an average SIP value starts with a 1,000 rupees a month. That's not difficult for even people in middle-class home, people who work for middle-class homes, the household help, the drivers, the presswala, whoever, the entire army of service providers, they can do much more than 1,000 rupees. So, yeah, so anyone who can save a 1,000 bucks a month can invest very easily in this product. Now, the second part of the story is where do you invest? How do you invest? That's where that's what really the book gets into that. uh, What is it that you should do? How do you decode these products?
0: Right. You know, uh, what are some of the common mistakes that Indian investors make while investing in mutual funds? Uh, When I was reading your book, you know, right ahead, you talk about the best returns mindset, you know, that Indians have while picking mutual funds. And you say that it can often be counterproductive. And that's not the way that you go about with it. So what are some of the common mistakes that uh, people tend to make? And how can your book help, uh, you know, help them understand uh, those mistakes and avoid them potentially?
1: Most investors look at mutual funds as a product which invests only in equity. That's a mistake. It doesn't. Um, Think of this as a pipeline from your savings to different asset classes like equity, debt, gold. Now real estate through REITs and combinations of these also foreign funds. So your money is trying to get exposure to different uh, forms of investment, different assets, if you go to buy directly, it's a lot of work and it's very difficult to construct these portfolios. So mutual funds allow you to do that. Most investors end up thinking that it is only equity mutual funds because of the return. So that's the first error. Second is they think SIP is a product, like FD is a product, SIP it is not. It is a way to invest regularly month on month in a fund of your choice. The third is the return thing, which you mentioned, is that you want to harvest the highest return. It is not possible to get the highest return year after year, because today's top performing fund is tomorrow's worst performing fund. You're buying last year's winner if you buy last year's top performing fund. So what I'm saying in the book is that if your scheme is in the top one quartile, which means top 25%, most of the time you're good, you might even find a fund which slips into the second quartile at times. It's fine. A fund can have a couple of bad years as long as over the 10, 20 year, 10, 15, 20 year period, your fund keeps its head above the water in the first quartile, gives consistent returns, has a manageable expense ratio. I'm fine with that. So I am just saying that perfection is a momentary occurrence in every life. So also in mutual funds, you will never have the perfect fund. Don't let good be the enemy of, don't let perfect be the enemy of good because nothing is perfect. If you have a good fund and you get a good return, what is a good return? The fund is beating the benchmark. Every fund has a benchmark attached to it, which is like the standard. It's beating the benchmark by at least three to four percentage points. Then it makes it worth you to do all of this work. invest into an active fund where the fund manager makes choices. Otherwise, you're far better off in a passive fund which is an index fund
0: right Uh, I want to take the conversation to a point that you mentioned about how in mutual funds a lot of people uh, want to take charge uh, of their own portfolios in that light uh, how do you rate the performance of fund managers over the last couple of decades because there is a section of retail investors uh, that feels that they can and they have done better than the managers and does that make a case for venturing on your own if you have the bandwidth
1: no if you have the bandwidth what i suggest always is that look at your own portfolio return so investors tend to only talk about their wins on one or two stocks they tend to forget the money they lost in either fno or day trading or other stocks so if you if you're honest with yourself and you take your portfolio cagr year on year to see what did you do did you beat the benchmark it's not enough that one Stock uh, gave you a multiplier. Overall, did your portfolio beat the benchmark? Are you consistent at beating the benchmark? If you are, then of course you don't need a mutual fund. You are good on your own. But if it is like a stroke of luck, then it's a very different story. And a lot of people find it easy to make money in a rising market. When there is a downturn in the market, are you still able to keep your head over water? Do you panic and do you sell, you know, so these are the questions you need to ask. And really, if you have the bandwidth and you are uh, so good at stock picking, of course, go direct.
0: Right. India uh, recently uh, said that, you know, they will, uh, it will uh, tax investments in debt mutual funds as short term capital gains. This, uh, you know, could could potentially strip investors of the long term benefits that made such instruments popular. Uh, What is your take on this?
1: I think it was very unfortunate that uh, the Ministry of Finance did this. I think it wasn't very well thought through. Uh, the, The two categories of products are very different. A fixed deposit does not have market risk, which means that the value doesn't go up and down. If you get 5%, you get, if they say it's 5%, you get 5%. Whereas a debt mutual fund is marked to market every day. It's a risk bearing product. You cannot tax the two in a similar manner. So this was a this was, I feel this was a very bad error. It's a bad signal to the markets. Having said that, you know, debt funds still make sense simply because of the liquidity, the ease of using, say, a liquid fund or a money market fund. For example, like even if you have a, a sweep facility, you know, a two-in-one account on your savings and your fixed deposit to hold your money, a liquid fund still works better because the interest that you get in, in that two-in-one account so, is not the five-year uh, interest. You will get that interest, which is applicable to the number of days you have held it. Okay. Whereas in a liquid fund, the story is very different. You will get the pro rata return of the yield, which is indicated. So, and even in terms of liquidity, you redeem uh, today. And then if tomorrow is a working day, you get the money first thing in the morning. Uh, if you're holding that liquid fund to invest further into some mutual fund, it's far easier to switch from a liquid to an equity of the same fund house. So there are many, many, many advantages of still holding a debt fund uh, over holding money in a fixed deposit. Fixed deposits, unfortunately, still remain clunky. So this is not to say that FT is a bad product, not at all. If you don't understand mutual funds and feel, you feel safe with, Fixed deposits, please stay there. All right, so do not enter into specially debt funds if you don't understand them because the risk may be something you cannot take. If you understand fixed deposits, all I request you is please don't do corporate deposits or cooperative bank deposits, corporate or cooperative to harvest the higher return. You're taking risk which is higher than the equity market here. So if you are an FT investor, you stay with the large scheduled commercial banks even if the returns are lower. But uh, for a person who understands funds, I think uh, using debt funds is a no-brainer. Once you once you once you um, you created the channels of investing, it's literally a thirty-second exercise to do that.
0: Right, and I think in March, uh, SEBI allowed private equity funds to own mutual fund companies. Are there any uh, challenges that you see here?
1: I don't think so. So what I know of SEBI right now, uh, last few years and now, is that a whole lot of data analytics go into the decision making. And I have been a part of many of their committees, the mutual fund committee, I was on it for almost 12 years. I'm part of several other committees. And I've seen the working of this regulator really closely. And every decision is passed through A committee process, which is made up of industry veterans, uh, consultants, tax consultants, people like myself who sort of represent the investor. You know, I am not selling any product, I'm not a commercial advisor. I am really in the financial education literacy space. So, somewhere I end up representing retail investors. So, SEBI proposals pass through this committee process for almost all of their decisions. So, you know, if they are allowing uh, private equity uh, companies to start owning, uh, you know, start sponsoring mutual funds, be sure that the process, the back end process, to ensure that nothing wrong happens, is already in place. So that is the kind of confidence I also through the book I'm trying to give to the investors that here is a regulator who has really understood its role as a protector of investor money. And without you knowing, has worked very, very hard at the risk of being lobbied against by the industry with the finance ministry to put in proposals, put put in rules which work for you on your behalf. Right. Because investors, obviously, you cannot look under the bonnet and see whether this car is safe or not. It's up to the regulator to ensure that. So be sure that uh, there are enough safeguards in place for this.
0: Also, uh, you're the chairperson of SEBI's Advisory Committee on Investor Education. So, and, and what is your take on the financial influencers of influencers, as, as they're called, who have also come under the radar of SEBI recently? How do you think they should be regulated?
1: So, to the extent that they spread awareness and they get people who have never thought about investing in markets to market, I think their role is very, very important. I find myself a little uncomfortable when uh, there is product placement within the content, when they start pushing a particular product. And I'm especially wary of content which carries crypto, either crypto exchange or crypto coin pitches. Um, So that's one sense of worry for me that uh, people tend to believe influencers. And uh, this is the wrong signal that crypto is safe or a particular life insurance policy is good. So I I, I find myself a little uh, not comfortable with that part of the Fin influencers. And the other is um, a lot of them are very young and that is their pop. You know, They're reaching the youth, the millennials and the Gen Z. This is a cohort which has never seen a bear market. And the confidence with which they promise three years money doubling is very scary to an old veteran war horse like myself, who has seen, I don't know how many bear markets and how many one-day crashes which are gut-wrenching. So I would just advise extreme caution that there are very good things that they bring to the table, but I think in their enthusiasm, they tend to overpromise.
0: Right. And lastly, uh, Monica, before I let you go, you know, what are some of the biggest trends or developments that you foresee in the mutual funds industry in India over the next few years?
1: You know, I think there will be more and more uh, funds coming in the uh, passive side of the market. So as you know, the active, active funds are now classified into 37 categories and every mutual fund company can have only one scheme in every category. Okay, so there, there is a cap in the number of schemes you can have. Uh, In the passive part, Sebi is saying that, let's see what the market does. So I would foresee many, many more innovative ideas starting to come in that space. Um, So I think passive part of the market is where we will see a lot of action. I'm also predicting that a lot of new firms come into the market. And when they come in, there's always disruption in terms of expense ratios being lowered, uh, some facilities to investors which weren't there coming to market. So we see innovation mainly when younger firms, hungrier firms come to market. And I know that there are a list of companies waiting to get the license and come to market to start offering their services. So I think this is really the best of capital markets, free markets, where it's competition, which finally will uh, be in investor interest. For competition and fair markets to work, you need a very strong regulator. So again, I think in this mutual fund story, we have a textbook case of a success of a free market, where there's a regulator making rules of the game. We have a very, very aggressive, innovative industry. We have a set of distributors who have really kept pace with the demands that the regulator has made and turned themselves into some of them are fantastic advisors. I mean, they have world class services and the investor who I think the Indian mutual fund investor is one of the most smartest in the world. When 2020 disaster happened on the markets, they came in to buy. It doesn't happen anywhere in the world that retail investors buy when markets crash. It happens in India. So we have all the three parts of the market working together. And to a policy wonk like myself, who, you know, we thought of this market 20 years ago in this manner, to see it play out like this is deeply satisfying.
0: Right. Thank you so much for your time, Monica. It was wonderful uh, speaking with you. And I really enjoyed your book. I hope you
1: made your portfolio.
0: Yeah, I have. I have. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. All right. Bye. For all of you listening to this episode and making it till the end, thank you so much. Uh, You can find us on the Forbes India website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Divya Shekhar. See you next time.